Good morning. This morning we continue our march through Luke's gospel, highlighting Jesus' continued ministry in and around the region of Perea as of late. Uh, We finished off chapter 13 last week, so this week we begin our study through chapter 14. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. And the title I've given for our study is Delusional Dinner Company. Okay, Delusional Dinner Company. Okay, I started out my study of this text thinking that perhaps we'd be able to cover all 24 verses in one setting, but that was me being a little delusional myself. And so uh, today is going to be Uh, the beginning of a two-part message. We'll get through the first half or so uh, and then finish off the second half next weekend, Lord willing. So in our text, we're going to read about what happened one particular Sabbath when Jesus was invited over for dinner at the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees. Would this be a peaceful, pleasant dinner or was something else cooking in the hearts and minds of the Pharisees and his other guests? Let's read. And find out what took place. If you're there in Luke 14, I'd like to ask you to rise to your feet in honor of God and His Holy Word. Our text again is verses 1 through 24. Though we won't cover all of these verses for context's sake, everything that kind of happened at the house, at that dinner, we're going to read about. And we'll look at half of it today and half of it next week. Okay? So, follow along in your Bible as I read from mine. Luke writes in chapter 14, verse 1. Now it happened, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus, answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, excuse me, saying to them, when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him and he who invited you and him come and Say to you, give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, Do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Verse 15. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper, invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. But they all, with one accord, began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground, and I must go and see it. I I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I 
ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly and into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this opportunity that we have to open it up this morning, to allow it to mold us and shape us. And Lord, I do pray that uh, we would just be open to what your Spirit wants to teach us and show us this morning. Lord, And we don't want to come with our own agendas. We don't want to come with our own thoughts or ideas. We just want to yield ourselves to you and be submitted to you. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead us into uh, all truth, Lord, that we would uh, understand what your Spirit is wanting to say to us today. Lord, that we would understand the context of what was taking place then, but that we'd be able to take that truth from there and apply them to our lives today. And so give us wisdom to do so and um, faith to follow through. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. I don't know uh, about you guys, uh, but I kind of hope this is true of you or most of you, but I love Sunday mornings and all that comes with it. Uh, You know, we get to gather together and we get to worship our Lord and read his word. We get to allow it to mold and shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. Uh, We get to enjoy the fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. We get to engage in conversation and check in with people, see how they are doing. Uh, For those of you with kids, the kids, they get to enjoy fun Sunday school lessons and crafts and various uh, fun activities that all reinforce the teachings that they're receiving through the Word on their own level. Uh, And then, you know, there's a whole lot of other things too that Coffee Cove and the Yummy Treats are are a nice bonus too um, that I look forward to. (laughs) Sunday mornings are great for a lot of different reasons, but one thing that I particularly enjoy are the fellowship opportunities that occur after the services are all done and and people start to make their way home. As a family, uh, we usually like to go out and enjoy a Sunday lunch with others from church as an extended time of uh, fellowship. Uh, And if not uh, for lunch, we usually go home for a quick bite to eat and a little a siesta afterwards, okay? If you don't know about the Sunday uh, afternoon naps, they are glorious, okay? Uh, I would recommend you put them into your schedule, okay? Now, usually if we don't go out for lunch with church family, we usually have evening plans that will serve as an extension of fellowship. Dinner, uh, games of some sort, uh, even just a, a movie, or simply sitting around the table enjoying a, a cup of coffee, some treats, and some church family uh, just fellowship. You know, Sundays are days that we spend with the body of Christ, uh, and it's something that we really value. It's something that we look forward to. You know, things weren't so different even back in Jesus's day. Though their specific day of worship was different, came meeting on the Sabbath, which we know is a Saturday uh, rather than a Sunday, the day uh, often was meant to be enjoyed in fellowship with other believers. 
Oftentimes, people would open up their homes for Sabbath meals and fellowship. They would enjoy service together at the local synagogue and then spend time together breaking bread and enjoying company of one another. Even the first century church did likewise when they would meet for their times of worship and fellowship. The church would gather together for what they called agape feast or love feast. The purpose of these gatherings was to, uh, one, remember Christ through partaking of communion together, uh, but it was also to encourage one another. It was to share in God's provision uh, with those who uh, were in need. The book of Acts describes how the first century church would gather regularly. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Acts also describes how the first century church continued daily with one accord in the temple and they broke bread from house to house and they would eat their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And verse 47 tells us that it was the Lord who added to the church daily those who were being saved. And it is in that regard that we try to mirror the first century church by you know, regularly partaking of communion ourselves, okay, uh, gathering together for potlucks. We just had a potluck last week. Uh, uh, it was great, a lot of good turnout, a lot of great food. Uh, we do picnics at the park. Uh, we encourage you guys to participate in activities that stretch you a little bit and uh, open hearts, open homes, where we say, hey, sign up, and we're going to go send you to someone's house that you don't know. But the heart behind it is that you might establish relationship, that you might establish friendship and fellowship, that you might get to know one another and encourage one another and edify one another to build and strengthen our fellowship. And then we just allow the Lord to add to the church as he sees fit. And so in our text today, we see that Jesus was invited to a dinner fellowship at the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees. And it was the Sabbath. And no doubt Jesus had spent the early part of the day at the local synagogue in worship and fellowship with his Jewish brethren. Perhaps, we don't know this for certain, but perhaps he was even asked to share from the scriptures as a traveling rabbi. We aren't told this specifically, but it would fit the pattern that we've seen thus far as we've made our way through Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke mentions Jesus traveling through the cities and villages and that he was teaching along the way. In just last chapter, we saw how Jesus was asked to teach at one of the local synagogues that he visited. And so it would seem that after the service was complete, Jesus was invited to come and participate in some sort of meal fellowship. And at this fellowship, we're going to see how Jesus interacts with various people and groups of people that had false or unrealistic beliefs and opinions that needed to be challenged. These people were delusional, okay? Now, sometimes when you think of delusional, you think of a mental state, like, I'm not talking about mental state, but just this idea, the thought, they thought and believed in something that was clearly false, okay? And Jesus takes the opportunity to share the truth with them that they may turn from their false beliefs and practices. In our text, Jesus is going to address four different people groups who had false beliefs, they had unrealistic opinions that needed to be confronted, For those of you who like to take notes, uh, outline our text. I have divided the text into these four different responses Jesus had to these four different people or people groups. In verses 1 through 6, Jesus is going to address the religious elite. In verses 7 through 11, Jesus will address the ambitious guests. In verses 12, 13, and 14, Jesus will address the selfish Pharisee. And lastly, in verses 15 through 24, Jesus will address a presumptuous Jew. Now, for our study this morning, we're only going to have opportunity to cover the first two groups. 
Okay, we will hit the second two groups in next week's study again, Lord willing. Okay, so let's take a look at our opening verse again as we jump into this first section dealing with the religious elite. Read with me once again verses 1 through 3. This is now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? We'll pause right there. Jesus accepted the invitation to eat bread at the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees, knowing full well the condition of their hearts. John's gospel tells us this regarding Jesus. John writes how Jesus knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. As God in the flesh, Jesus did not see as man sees, but he saw the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And he knew that this invitation was nothing more than an elaborate scheme by the Pharisees to try and trap him in something he would do or say. Our text tells us that as soon as Jesus entered the house, the eyes of the Pharisees were fixed upon him. They were watching him closely. Now, the Greek verb used here to describe their watching him closely, it's a very descriptive word. It wasn't just a a mere observance or a casual watching. This word speaks of watching something very intently. In fact, it means to observe someone insidiously, okay, to observe someone with evil or harmful intent. It's actually only used six times in all of the New Testament. Uh, Four of those six times, it refers to the religious elite watching Jesus closely that they might entrap him or bring accusation against him or eventually hand him over to the authorities for punishment. In Mark chapter 3, verse 2, they watched Jesus that they might accuse him. In Luke 6, 7, they watched Jesus that they may find an accusation against him. Here in our text, we're told they watched Jesus that they may accuse him. Or if you're reading from the New King James Version, it has a little superscript there. You can look in the center column or at the bottom. It says to bring charges against him. In Luke chapter 20, we haven't got there yet in our own study, but we will eventually. Uh, the religious elite, they sent spies who pretended to be righteous that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. Okay, one of the other times it's used is, uh, is in the book of Acts. Uh, it speaks of the Jews and how they watch the gates day and night looking for Paul that they may kill him. And so we see that this word carries with it more than just a, a simple observation. Okay, It is a careful examination with the intent to bring harm or to entrap. And Jesus was fully aware of their tactics. He was aware of their hearts in this situation, yet he still came and he interacted with them that he may have the opportunity to share the truth with them in love. You see, Jesus always shared the truth even when it was difficult to hear or challenging to receive. And he did so because of his great love for people. He did so with the hopes that people's hearts would be changed, that they would respond to the truth, that they would surrender their false beliefs and opinions in exchange for the truth that he revealed. Jesus was not afraid to share the truth with others because he understood their need for the truth. He shared the truth even if it meant confronting lies that others had believed or they had even built their very lives upon And I believe Jesus examples this for us, that we might follow after him, 
that we would be those that share the truth in love with the hopes that people would be changed by the truth. In Romans chapter 1, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. We need to care more about people's eternal standing with the Lord than we do our social standing with them. Perhaps we may offend a few people by speaking the truth to them, but perhaps we may see some get saved. Perhaps we may see some turn from their false beliefs and receive the truth of the gospel. And isn't their eternal standing worth that? Okay, wouldn't it be better to take the risk of offending someone now rather than letting them continue towards eternity apart from the Lord? Jesus wasn't afraid to mix it up with these Pharisees because it created at least one more opportunity for him to speak forth the truth and to confront some of the lies and false beliefs these people clung to. Now, the Pharisees had also invited, along with Jesus, a certain individual that was suffering from a physical condition known as dropsy. Okay, dropsy is a, a medical, condition, medical condition where the body accumulates excessive amounts of fluid within the tissues, uh, uh, causing swelling. It can result in great pain. It can result in great stiffness. Uh, it's more commonly referred to as edema today. Um, some of you may be familiar with it. Um, I said this in first service, and I said I wouldn't say it in second service, but I'll say it again. Um, sometimes pregnant ladies may experience a form of this as their legs uh, may swell uh, during pregnancy in the later stages of their pregnancy. And so this is a form of that, an excessive amount of water retention and swelling. And it can be quite painful. Okay, Now this is no coincidence that the man with dropsy was found to be right in front of Jesus. Okay, No doubt he was staged there as a way to entrap Jesus. You see, normally a person in this condition would not be welcomed at the likes of a ruler of a Pharisee's house. Okay, Back then it was believed that most diseases, illnesses, were the result of some sort of divine retribution, that God was punishing them for their sins. And so if someone had some kind of sickness, they would be considered unclean. Okay? And they would be considered unwelcome in fellowship events like the one described for us here in our text. So this is no doubt a trap that the Pharisees have set for Jesus. The Pharisees have invited a man suffering from dropsy, placed him right before Jesus, hoping to catch Jesus in some sort of catch-22 situation. Okay? No matter what he does, he's going to you know, end up in a bad place. If Jesus does nothing for the man with dropsy and simply ignores him, they could then accuse Jesus of being without compassion. If, however, Jesus does show compassion towards the man and heals him, then they could accuse Jesus of violating the Sabbath for healing was considered work and to do any sort of work on the Sabbath was prohibited. And so what would Jesus do? Okay? It would seem that no matter what he does, they will have something to accuse him of. Well, in verse 3, we read how Jesus responded to the situation. It says, And Jesus, answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees. You see, the lawyers and Pharisees, they're not recorded as saying anything, but Jesus knew their thoughts. He knew their hearts. He knew what was going on. He knew they were trying to trap him and bringing accusations against him. And so he just, you know, okay, all right, let's, let's hash this out. Let's, here's my answer to you guys, okay? You've obviously set this man right in front of me. Let's address the issue, okay? 
the lawyers and Pharisees okay, have set the trap and Jesus engages. He answers them directly and he asks the question, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? A very simple question, right? According to the Mosaic law, the Sabbath was part of the initial Ten Commandments that were given to Moses from the Lord. Exodus chapter 20 states, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant, nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Okay? The law concerning the Sabbath was that it was to be a day of rest. A day where no work was completed. It was this way to remind the people of God's work during creation and how God rested on the seventh day. He had completed His work. And so the people, they were to get rest and be refreshed from their six days of work on the Sabbath day. And actually throughout the Old Testament, you can read of different examples of what was forbidden on the Sabbath. Okay, Such things as plowing and harvesting. Uh, kindling fire, uh, gathering manna or gathering wood, uh, buying and selling, lifting loads upon cattle or bearing loads upon oneself. Those are all examples of things that were forbidden within the scriptures that we can look to and we can read and say, oh yeah, these people got rebuked for doing this or some people actually were killed because they violated the Sabbath by doing some of these things. Okay? All of these things constituted work. But man came along and wanted to further define everything, to categorize exactly what constituted work. And so the rabbis came up with 39 different categories of work. Okay? I have them listed up there for you. Okay? You have carrying, burning, extinguishing, finishing, writing, erasing, cooking, washing, sewing, tearing, knotting, untying, shaping, plowing, planting, reaping, harvesting, Threshing, winnowing, selecting, sifting, grinding, kneading, combing, spinning, dyeing, chain stitching, warping, weaving, unraveling, building, demolishing, trapping, shearing, slaughtering, skinning, tanning, smoothing, and marking. These were all categories of work. Okay? And that was not enough, though. They had to further qualify what would be included within these categories okay, of work, making it even more stringent. For instance, today, under the category of burning, it is forbidden from turning on a light on the Sabbath. Okay? An Orthodox Jew will not turn on a light on the Sabbath day, okay? Because this would be considered work. Because when an electric light is turned on, its filament is heated, white hot, producing light. Thus, you burn something by turning on a light, and that is forbidden, okay? Also forbidden would be turning off the light because that falls under the category of extinguishing, okay? So you cannot burn anything and you cannot extinguish anything. You have to turn your lights on and leave them on or you put them on a timer uh, and they turn themselves on and off by themselves. As long as you're not the one that did it, that was okay. Now, any sort of electricity is actually a violation of the Sabbath under the categories of burning and extinguishing. If you go to Israel today, and I would just... Shameless plug here. Okay, if you ever have the opportunity to go to Israel, I strongly encourage it. 
we're not making any plans to do one. We did a church trip back in 2015. It'd be great to go again. I don't know when that will happen. But if you ever have the opportunity to go, it is an amazing, uh, life-changing experience. The scriptures come to life before you, and you read things in the scripture, and you're like, that happened right there. And then that happened right there, and it's just amazing. But if you have the opportunity to go, okay, don't visit Jerusalem on the Sabbath, okay? That is, is not the best place to be uh, uh, in, on the Sabbath, okay? If you go to Israel today, they have what they call Sabbath elevators in the hotels, okay? That stop at every single floor so that you don't have to push a button which would light the floor number, and in so doing, you would be guilty of violating the Sabbath, okay? And so they have elevators at these hotels. One will be a Sabbath elevator, and then the other one will be a regular elevator, okay? And the Sabbath elevator will stop at every single floor all the way up and all the way down, okay? And if you want to be an Orthodox Jew and not violate any of the Sabbath, that's how you will get to your room. Or... You go in the elevator because they have other people that are manning the Gentiles, non-Jews, who will push the floor button for you. So if someone else violates the Sabbath, it's okay, as long as you're not the one that does it. And so it's very extreme, okay? Even today, what constitutes work, okay? But even in Jesus' day, he was accused of violating the Sabbath by picking heads of grain as he walked along a field. Picking or plucking any sort of grain or fruit was considered work under the category of reaping. Okay? To then rub the grain in your hand and eat the grain would be considered winnowing. That's forbidden from the law, and so you can be uh, killed for that. <laughs> uh, you violated the Sabbath, and the punishment for violating the Sabbath was stoning. And so... Man had taken something that was meant to be a day of rest and and refreshment, and he turned it into a form of legalistic bondage. They turned the Sabbath into a burden rather than it being a day of rest. One could even make the case that the religious elite themselves were in violation of the Sabbath by trying to trap Jesus because trapping was one of the categories they defined as work. And so... Um, you know, the rules were only followed when it was convenient for them, basically, okay? Healing would be classified under the category of finishing because finishing involves all forms of repairs and adjustments. To make someone whole or repair them would be to, you know, to heal them would be constituted as work, and so therefore it was a violation uh, to heal anybody on the Sabbath. That's how they looked at it, okay? Now, Nothing in the law of Moses forbid Jesus from healing this man. I need you guys to understand that. It was man's tradition. It was man's interpretation of the law is what was being violated here. In that sense, we've already seen in Luke's account alone five different times where Jesus violated the Sabbath according to their man-made traditions. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus healed a man that was demon-possessed, and then he healed Peter's mother-in-law who had a fever. In Luke chapter 6, he allowed his disciples to pluck heads of grain and even healed a man with a withered hand. And then just a few weeks ago, we read of how he healed a woman that had been afflicted by a demonic spirit that caused her to be doubled over at the waist. Jesus wasn't afraid to violate these man-made traditions and to confront the hypocrisy of these religious elite. And so let's read and see how the lawyers and Pharisees responded. Jesus asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Verse 4 says... But they kept silent. They had nothing to say, okay? 
And he took him and healed him and let him go. And then he answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. The lawyers and the Pharisees, they did not say a word to Jesus. They just sat there. They waited to see what Jesus would do. How cold and heartless of these people to use this man that was suffering from a real medical condition as bait in their trap for Jesus. Jesus took the man. He laid hold of him and healed him instantly. And then he let him go, dismissing him from the scene, releasing him from this awkward scenario where he had been used as bait by the religious elite. And before the lawyers and Pharisees could even say a word, before they could say anything to Jesus, he once again answered them, again, knowing the thoughts of their hearts. And he asked, which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath? The religious elite had set a trap for Jesus that they felt was sure to give them some sort of accusation they could use against him. In their view, he would either heal the man on the Sabbath and therefore violate the Sabbath traditions, or he would do nothing showing to all who were there that he was a man without compassion for the hurt and the despairing. But Jesus very cleverly flipped the trap upon themselves with this very simple question. And the religious elite had made exceptions to the Sabbath law when it came to helping an animal of theirs in need. If one of their animals had fallen into a pit, they were permitted to help pull it out, even though technically it was considered work, they made an exception for their animals. And so by bringing in one of their own exceptions into view, Jesus placed them in a particular spot. They could say nothing about Jesus and his healing of the man or if they wanted to say something, bring accusations against him. In so doing, they would show that they care more about animals than their fellow human beings and their brethren who were made in the very image of God. They had hoped to prove Jesus either a lawbreaker or a heartless man, but Jesus flipped the trap upon themselves, forced them to either show their own exceptions to the rules were not valid or that they themselves were heartless when it came to their fellow man. And so what did they do? Verse 6 tells us, They remained silent. They could not answer him regarding these things. Jesus shined a light upon their hypocrisy, how they were willing to make exceptions for their livestock in need, but not their fellow man. They wanted to show Jesus as a man lacking compassion, but Jesus showed that they were the ones who lacked compassion for their fellow man. Their hypocrisy blinded them to their own heartless actions and left them without anything they could say or do about it. They claimed to be defenders of God and lovers of His holy law, when in reality they were denying God and they were showing hatred toward His holy Son and their own Messiah. In this example of this religious elite, we see that rules, rituals, false religion will do nothing to help those in need around us. It is the love of God our compassion for others, our desire to help those in need that the world so desperately needs. Peter exhorted the first century church that above all things, above all things, that we have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. 
Jesus gave us a new commandment that we love one another as he has loved us, that we also love one another. In the world, they will know that we are his disciples, not by the rules that we keep or the rituals that we follow. Okay, The world will know that we are his by the love that we have for one another. May we love as Christ loved. May we be bold in declaring the truth in love that the world around us may be saved, that they may be touched by the love of God through us. Well, let's take a look at this next group of people that Jesus addressed in verses 7 through 11. Jesus shares a certain parable in response to what he observed in the actions of the guests there at the Pharisee's house. Verse 7 says, So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. As Jesus observed the shuffling about by the people in this place, he noticed how people were scrambling for the best seats in the house. Traditionally, when someone would host a meal like this, there would be groups of three tables set up in a U-shaped design with three mats and uh, pillows for everyone to recline upon and eat. And it's called a triclinium. Um, if you want to look it up, you can later on. But anyways, uh, you would have a small uh, round pillow uh, that you would lean on your left-hand side like this, recline down, your feet would be back away from the table, okay? and you would use your right hand to uh, eat with. Okay? Uh, tear bread off, dip it in common breads, double dipping, triple dipping is fine. Okay? Everybody just shared the same bowls. All right? And so each of these uh, settings, if you will, each table setting would usually have place for nine guests, three on each side of the table. They would be, almost be in like a square, but one of the sides is left open so the servants could come in and uh, deliver the food to the table, if you can get a mental picture of that. Okay? So each spot at each table had a specific place of significance. There would be special seats for the host, uh, the chief person of the company, uh, the most distinguished guests would have certain seats allotted to them, and there was kind of a ranking within, the, if you sat in this seat, this was the most prominent, and then this is the next most prominent, and so forth. There's a, a, a ranking, if you will, to these assigned seats. And so, there was a, a very established etiquette to it all. Each seat had a certain level of prominence to it. The best places would be the ones that would allow you to rub elbows. Okay, literally, you're like leaning down and you know rubbing elbows with people. Um, with some of the most uh, distinguished of company, if you got one of the, the best places. This sort of meal was seen as a great opportunity for social networking and gaining an audience before prominent people. The people in this situation, we're scrambling around looking for the best seats in the house. Okay, it would seem that they were more concerned with sitting in the right place than they were with being the right kind of person. Okay? To them, it was just all about, well, I gotta, who, it's who you, about who you know. I know some of you can relate to that. Um, sometimes that seems to be the mentality. It's not um, what you do or how you do it, but you know, who you know. Um, and, and that is the mindset here. It's people wanting to get the best seats so that they might interact with more prominent people. 
Jesus observed the people and their choosing of the best places, and he spoke a parable to them about an ambitious dinner guest. Jesus told the people when they were invited to a wedding feast not to take the best seats, but rather to take the lowest seat. Okay, this would be completely contrary to normal practice. This would guarantee you are saved from the potential embarrassment of being asked to leave once everyone's been seated and your host must come along and ask you to give up your seat for a more prominent guest. Uh, Of course, this would be extremely humiliating if that were to happen to you. Uh, It would be shameful for anyone to have uh, to get up from their seat and walk out especially in such a, a big and prominent social event such as a wedding feast. Okay? These were community events, and so everybody within the community would be invited to these types of things. And so there would be guests from all throughout uh, the community. You'd have to walk, the, take this walk of shame, uh, pass them all to a lesser place uh, within the seating. And by the time this took place, it would be very likely that the only seats available would be the lowest places next to the servants. And so Jesus says it's better to start at the bottom. And then he says, perhaps, this isn't some kind of guarantee, he says, perhaps the host may come along and move you up to a more prominent place, bestowing upon you an even greater honor than had you just tried to take it in the first place. Now, I want to be careful here, you guys. Jesus was not saying this as some sort of gimmick to get the host to elevate you in front of all the other people. Okay? Jesus is teaching us here on how to have humility. He's not trying to give you tips on how to be exalted in the eyes of man. False humility that tries to take the lowest place just to get others to recognize you and lift you up to a higher place is just as bad as the pride that leads us to taking the highest place. The goal that Jesus is teaching us is not how to receive the glory of man, but how to humble yourself before the Lord and be exalted by him. Just a few weeks ago, we noted how Jesus described the kingdom of God. He said that the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, that the last will be first and the first will be last. Okay? You see, God's evaluation of us is not based upon what man thinks of us. The glory of man does nothing in regard to how God views things. You can be the most powerful and popular, influential person in the room, and that will mean absolutely nothing when it comes to how God sees you. Okay? Remember that God does not see as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the emphasis upon this parable is humbling yourself instead of exalting yourself. But I don't think this was simply meant to be good advice for social engagements. I believe Jesus is referring to how things will transpire in his kingdom. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Honor is not something that can be taken. It can only be given. And the one who gives honor in God's kingdom is the Lord himself. And he will not give honor to those who seek to honor themselves. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's what James 4, 6 tells us. In fact, this was such an important thing. He repeats it. Okay? It's also listed in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Same exact thing. That God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, in God's kingdom, he will be the one that decides our place. God makes the final assessment, and God is the one who will decide the seating arrangements in his kingdom. We must approach the Lord and his kingdom with great humility. After all, you guys, we must understand and consider that we didn't do anything to deserve a place in his kingdom. 
We didn't do anything to deserve heaven. It was all a work of God's grace upon us. Jesus Christ bore our sins upon the cross of Calvary. He is the one that deserves all the praise, honor, and glory. We don't deserve anything. And so we must come in humility. And should the Lord choose to exalt us or or lift us up, praise the Lord. It will all be the result of His grace upon us, and we will have nothing to boast about. It will have nothing to do with us and what we did. When we think of humility and what that looks like, it can be very difficult to explain, difficult to ascertain. Humility is a a fundamental grace in the Christian life, and yet it is quite elusive. It's said if you know you have it, you've probably lost it. It's also been said that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's simply not thinking of yourself at all. And, and I get and understand the gist by such a statement, but I believe it involves a little more than that. Humility isn't about degrading ourselves and thinking of ourselves as some sort of horrible, sinful uh, person that you know just always blows it. And we're kind of like, oh, I'm just a horrible person. I'm just a wretched sinner, and I'm so humble. Okay? That's not what humility is, okay? It involves having a proper and a realistic view of ourselves through God's eyes. Okay? To see ourselves as the Lord sees us. It involves us realizing our sinfulness and understanding our limitations while also recognizing the gifts and the strengths that God has given to us for His service. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, we surrender ourselves and all that we have to Him and to His service. That is what true humility looks like. It's okay to acknowledge if you have certain gifts, certain talents that God has given to you and say, God's given me this. Okay? That's not pride. Okay? Well, it can be, but you know, it doesn't mean that it's automatically prideful. Okay? You could be humble and still admit and say, God's given me this ability to do this and I want to use it for His service. I want to use it for His glory. And you can still be humble. Okay? That's what true humility looks like and it was best personified by none other than Jesus Christ. Paul writes the following about humility and the example Jesus left for us. He states this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each one of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Humility involves esteeming others better than ourselves. It involves putting others and their interests before our own. It involves disregarding our own reputation and what others may say or think and making ourselves a servant. It involves us being obedient to all that the Lord has laid out for us in accordance with His will and His giftings and His abilities that He's given to us. This is what Jesus did when He came to this earth as a man. And in response, God highly exalted Him in heaven, gave Him the name that is above every other name. All will bow before Christ, confess confess him as Lord, and it will all be done to the glory 
of God the Father. And the same, I believe, is true of us. When we humble ourselves, God will exalt us. And the result will not be for our praise. It will not be for our honor or for our glory, but to the praise, honor, and glory of God the Father and His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. It is because of what they have done that we will receive anything. We're going to stop right here, okay? I'm going to put a pause on this. We're going to come back next week. Lord willing, you guys can all come back next week. And we're going to continue this account, this dinner date that's uh, happening. And uh, some of these guests there, the company that were a little bit delusional, we're going to pick up and read what else happened. Um, though, thus far, Jesus has confronted the religious elite and the ambitious guests at this particular dinner. We learned and noted how Jesus was not afraid to share the truth with those who needed to hear the truth. He was willing to confront the lies and the false beliefs of others in hope that they would turn from them. Jesus shared the truth in love. Love was his motivating factor in much of everything that he did. Jesus was filled with compassion for others, and we need to have that same compassion for the world around us. And Jesus taught us the importance of humbling ourselves before the Lord and allowing him to exalt us in due season. I want to encourage you guys, read ahead next week. Allow the Lord to prepare your heart for what is to come. And, and hopefully the Lord will just be confirming things that he's already showed you through this week, come next week. But for today, I'd like to just recap this. Think about this. These people who were delusional, okay, they had false beliefs, false assumptions. Okay, they had made and built their lives upon falsehoods. How did Jesus confront them? He did so with the truth. He did so with love. And he did so with humility. And I think it's a great example for us, you guys. As we go out into the world, may we be those who share the truth, who do so in love, and do so in humility. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this opportunity to study it. Lord, I pray that you would just continue to speak to our hearts in the week to come. Prepare us for even next week and the finishing off of this study. Lord, we thank you for just the things that we noted. Jesus, how you addressed these people who had false assumptions, false beliefs, um, hard hearts, Lord. You confronted them with the truth. Lord, but you did so in love. And Lord, you did so... uh, expressing it and showing and teaching the importance of humility. And so, Lord, I pray that we would in like manner follow suit, Lord, that we would share the truth with those around us, that we would do so uh, because they need to hear the truth, that we wouldn't be concerned about how they may respond or maybe we might even offend them, Lord. We'd much rather uh, offend someone but see them saved, Lord, than to not offend them and see them spend eternity in hell. And so, Lord, I pray, may we be bold with your truth, May we share your truth with love, Lord, and may we do so in all humility, Lord, knowing that we are no greater than anybody else. We are just as messed up as the rest of the world, Lord, and it's only by your grace, by your love, by your Son's work upon the cross that we are anything. And so, Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the work he completed on the cross for us. We thank you for the work he continues to do in us each and every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.